Sometimes I feel like the Holy Spirit has already preached the sermon before I get up here to preach it. I feel like that today. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. And yet we need to hear more. So Father, we ask You to come by Your Spirit in us and just speak to us. As we just sang, Lord, speak to us. Inform us. Help us to love one another as You have loved us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what we've, what we've just been a part of and what we've been praying and experiencing together over the last few minutes is uh, it's pretty countercultural, right? This idea of, of really loving one another, of asking the Lord to teach us what it means to, to give of ourselves to one another. That's not the world's motto, right? The world's motto is, is probably more like sort of you do you. Right? Focus on you. You take care of yourself. Let everybody else take care of themselves and everything is going to be okay. That's the motto of the world, but it doesn't work. It falls apart in real life because we don't live in a vacuum. Right? We, we don't live isolated lives. We don't, we don't live in a bubble. We live in community. We live in community, whether we like it or not. And if you want proof of that, I would challenge you just to take a drive on Lakeshore this afternoon and try as hard as you might to be a strict individualist. Try. You can't do it, right? And the reason I'm, that, that analogy, that, that vision comes into my mind is because I was thinking about this week, the best advice that I got when I was learning how to drive came from my father who said this to me. He said, son, when you're, when you're in the car, remember, you're not just driving your car, you're driving the car in front of you. And you're driving the car next to you. And you're driving the car behind you. Right? I think that's sort of what we call defensive driving. Um, driving the car in front of you, beside you, behind you, it's not just you. Uh, in, in other words, what, he, what he's saying there is that we... We interact with people. We rub shoulders with people. We respond to one another. We consider one another. We ought to. We have to anticipate one another, right? We don't live in a bubble. And I think that's what Paul is trying to say to us in this text. There's similar counsel here for the church. His concern in the text here centers on how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. And by extension, then to others. But the, the, the primary focus here is, is how we relate to one another in the church. And the guiding principle is love. It's love. And, and we, we see that he's been highlighting that all throughout the letter. He's been encouraging the Thessalonian believers in their love for one another. I'll, I'll point you back to a couple of the key parts of the letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3, he says, we give thanks to God for all of you, always remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. In chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourself have been taught by God 
to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And then even at the end of the text from last week, chapter 5, verse 11, he says, therefore encourage one another. Build one another up. Just as you're doing. So when we round now into verse 12 of chapter 5, I think this is where Paul's instructions sort of merge with, and no, no, no pun intended, but merge with my dad's driving instructions. If, if love is the vehicle in which we navigate our relationships, Paul is saying here, you've got to love the person in front of you. You've got to love the people next to you. And you've got to love the people whom the Lord may have placed behind you. And that's where I title the message this morning, Life in the Church, 360 Degree Love. The, the, the outline this morning is, is simply that. It's, 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 we're supposed to, to love those that God has placed in front of us, next to us, and behind us. It's a 360 degree love that we're called to this morning. So let's read it again. Let's dive in here and let's examine that 360 degree outline here. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Love those whom God has placed in front of you. Loving those whom God has placed in front of you. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Alright, so here Paul is talking about, the reason I use the word in front of you, he's talking about loving your spiritual leaders. Now, I want you to catch this because it's very interesting to note that the word translated as respect in verse 12 is in the actual Greek, it's it's the word oida, which literally means to know. So read it again with me with that phrase. We ask you, brothers, to know those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul uses the same Greek word, oida, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which by the way has a very similar context. And it's been translated there as recognize. So let's read it again in that way. We ask you, brothers, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Here's the idea. To respect, to know, to recognize. The idea, I think, is this. To properly respect those who are in leadership is to know them and to recognize them for who they really are. And here's what Paul says about who they are. They are those who are over you, key part, in the Lord. Know them. Recognize them. Honor them as those who are over you in the Lord. And so the exhortation here for Paul is one of, I think, two things. It's one of prudence and one of posture. Okay? One of prudence and one of posture. Here's what I mean by prudence. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll, 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 I'll sort of define it by sort of asking a, a sort of a negative question. How often 
do we have breakdowns in respect for church leadership and in, un- in church unity? Breakdowns in respect for church leaders and breakdowns in church unity because we fail to recognize the right leaders. When we think like the world, we'll often recognize people for reasons of maybe status. Social status, maybe economic status. Sometimes we might say, well, this person has, they're, 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 they've got business acumen. They're, they're sort of good at, at having skills out in the world. And so let's recognize them as those who are leaders then in the church. Or, or oftentimes, and maybe this is what happens most, we pay attention to those who simply just have the loudest voices. Especially when those voices stroke our own egos. Because they share a similar worldview as me. They share opinions like mine, right? And so we'll, we'll sort of recognize leaders. We'll, we'll sort of attach ourselves to and begin to follow those who have some of those kinds of attributes. And I want to say there's nothing inherently wrong about any of those qualities, but this is important to, to note. They are nonetheless susceptible to ungodly corruption and application. Apart from being rooted in the Lord and given by God and, 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 and the leadership that we ought to follow as Paul is about to lay out, when we simply follow people or recognize leadership as the pattern of the world, we're susceptible to corruption. And then we're somehow surprised when divisiveness breaks down unity in the church. What happened? So I think the point here from Paul is this. He's telling us what kind of people we should be recognizing as leaders. And in other words, he's essentially saying this. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. And that's what I mean by prudence. So how do we do that? How does a church recognize leaders, which is a timely question for us, by the way, here at Edgewater, as we're looking to affirm elders? How do we recognize Leaders, here it is. Look for those whom God has raised up. And you'll recognize them because they're the ones who are already working hard to shepherd you. I'm going to say that again because it's really important and it's the key of what Paul's getting at here. Here's how you recognize leadership. Look for the ones that God has raised up. You'll, you'll recognize them because they're the ones who are already working hard to shepherd you. And he gives us three ways here in verse 12. Again, look at it. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Three things that we, can, we should be able to already see happening in the kind of leadership that we ought to be recognizing and respecting. The first one here, he says, they're laboring. They're working hard, in other words. Uh, the opposite of that would be this. He's not talking about those who sort of have idle chit-chat. Who are, who are sort of all talk, but no, no action. And that happens a lot. It's easy for that to happen in the context of, of any kind of, of gathering or organization. It can certainly happen in the church. We just sort of like, we want to talk about things, but we don't actually want to do anything about it. We might want to sort of uh, complain about things, but we don't want to contribute. Right? 
And so Paul's saying, no, there, there, there are some among you who are already, they're working hard for the benefit of the church. These, these are people who aren't sort of idle and chit-chat. They're not setting agendas. They're not contrarians. But they actually are people who have skin in the game, who are laboring to serve the body, to serve the church. Their desire to say, we want this church to grow. We want to love you and, and shepherd you and care for you. And we're going we're gonna to actually act towards that. I'm in. I'm all in. How can I serve? How can I help? How can I assist? They're working hard. That's the first thing. The second thing is he says they are over you in the Lord. And over you, it's sort of hard to translate this word, the Greek word he uses here in English, but the idea is one of protection. It's one of guardianship. The the idea here is that, that these are people who are in their hard work for the church. That hard work is characterized by a desire to bring service and give aid to the body. To, to protect people. To act as a benefactor in any way possible. And it's interesting that in, it, we have an example of that even in this church in Thessalonica because in, in the book of Acts when Paul is talking about his journey here and, and how the church was formed, we see the emergence of someone there named Jason. And J, J, Jason's there because of two things. There's two, two things that are highlighted by him. One was it was his house that he, he invited everybody in to gather together as the church, which was not a safe thing to do. In the midst of persecution to say, look, come to my place, was a, was a, was an offer of refuge, but it was one that put him at personal risk. But he was willing to be a benefactor to the body. Look, you guys come here. And then the second thing we see about Jason is that when, when Paul and, and, uh, and his associates were, were sort of being sought out and attacked to be who knows what, arrested, beaten, it was Jason who stood in the way and helped them to get out of the way and, and essentially acted as the target. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to give aid. That's the idea of being over. And then the third thing here is he says, and they'll admonish you. Which is simply to say this, it's those who are willing to disciple the church. Those who who aren't going to shrink away or shrink back from confronting sin because they know that that wouldn't aid your growth. My goal is your growth. My, my goal is your joy in Christ. Your, as, as Esteban just prayed, freedom. So not to shrink back from admonition when admonition is necessary. A person with, with no proven track record of lovingly confronting sin, but rather sort of maybe sweeping it under the rug because they're afraid of, of man is not a leader to be recognized in the Lord's church. So we're to be prudent about that. God, who have you, who's already doing that? These are the ones that we can say, God, you, you've done this. You've raised them up. We just, we're just called to recognize it. And this is where posture then comes into play. Verse 13. He says, and then esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem them then in love because of that work that they're doing to, to shepherd and to care for and to disciple and to admonish. Esteem them in love. Love them. As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to being skeptical. As opposed to being sort of stodgy. 
I don't want anybody to tell me. I don't need leadership. Priesthood of the believer, right? Paul said, no, that, that, that's the wrong attitude. Not that, that there's not a priesthood of the believer, but if, but, but if, if your sense is that like, then, then there shouldn't be anyone that has any sort of voice into my life. This is just me and God. It's just about me and God. Um, you're ignoring the gift that God has given to you. Ephesians 4, it's the Lord who has given to the church prophets, pastors, teachers, leadership for the building up of the body, for the equipping, for the work of ministry, so that the body can be built up. It's a gift. And, and, I, and I think it's important for us to highlight that because our culture tells us to question authority. We're, we're always sort of taught to sort of question leadership. And, and, and that's, that's dangerous because good authority is really the safeguard of order and peace. Think about that. What's the absence of authority? It's anarchy. That's not good, right? And we live in an age when rejection of, of, of institutional authority in particular is sort of seen as a virtue. Perhaps especially in the church. But, but Paul's saying, look, no, no, when, when church leadership, good leadership in that regard, the kind that God raises up, it's not like the kind of the world. When, when that is recognized properly and, and it's carried out, that's an institution, if you will, that's worthy of respect because it's an institution of God. It's leadership instituted by our, our Savior. And therefore, esteem them highly because of their work. This is how we love those whom God has placed in front of us. That's number one. Number two is then loving those whom God has placed next to you. And it comes there at the end of verse 13. It's very simple. Very short little sentence. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Again, very simple exhortation. But notice this. It is an exhortation. He's not saying simply, you're at peace. He's saying, be at peace. You've got to do something here. Be at, seek to be at peace with one another. How? Well, recognizing simply that. This is not a passive condition. Peace is not a passive condition. It takes effort to not only achieve peace, but to sustain peace. And, and I think the, the way that we can prove that out is by simply looking to the cross of Christ. Look to the cross. Ephesians 2, 13-16 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So here, here's, here's Paul talking to the Ephesian church in the context of division. 
Right? The, 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 the danger there was that you've got a church with, you've got Jew and Gentile and, and there's, there's conflict, there's division, there's sort of this, you know, well, you're, they're the us versus them. They're, they were failing in unity. And here Paul says, you know what the answer to that? Be at peace. Jesus is our peace. Look what Jesus has done. He actively came to do something about that. He died for this. And he died to create something out of this. Not two, but one people. That He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul's saying, look, for, for the sake of loving our brothers, this idea of unity in the church is so important and you've got to seek to be at peace with one another. That's a continual challenge for the church. Over the years, I think that division, at least as far as my own experience, my own life in the church has been concerned, I've seen that play itself out in, in over things like doctrine, which is you know sometimes a necessary thing, but it, but it can become exceedingly divisive. Sometimes over things like worship preferences, maybe you know maybe you came out of an experience like I did, where my church actually sort of split over that issue. Music, for crying out loud. Right? But I think, I think the thing that, that's worth highlighting to say what, what's, what's sort of the, what, what's maybe one of the chief ways in which peace is threatened in the church today, I think it's this. It's, it's politics. It's things like political division, racial conversations, social issues, those kinds of things. I think I mentioned before, um, about a year ago, that over the, that the previous year, the issue that I had dealt with most on a, on a pastoral shepherding level, the kind of issue where, you know, people have to come into my office and work through conflict, the, the, the chief cause of that issue over that period of time was definitely politics. And I think I can still say that that's, that's holding true. There was a, there was a meeting earlier this week out at Wheaton College, and it was a gathering of, of some evangelical leaders they were, who, were, who were wanting to talk about, you know, what's, what's going on in the church today? What's, what's the disunity issue in the church? Recognizing that there is, there does seem to be a divide, even within evangelicalism. So much so that the term itself is sort of being jettisoned. People don't want to be associated with those evangelicals, right? And so Tim Keller gets up at this, this conference and he, he said this. He said, as the country has become more polarized, the church has become more polarized. And that's because, here's his reason, that's because the church is not different enough from America or from modernity. He says there's now a red and a blue evangelicalism. And when I heard that, here's my, here's, here's my opinion. It's sort of like the way I received that. I think that should have been received as just a good and needed check. You know, like we, you hear that and be like, you know what? You're right. Like, there, that's true. We see that. that. That's, that's a check on us. But instead, it was met by a walkout at the conference. People walked out when he said it. And then followed that with a barrage of criticism on social media 
with sort of this idea that, look, pastors, just don't, don't touch that topic. Don't touch politics. Don't touch divisiveness over those kinds of things. As if to say that that's not somehow conversation worthy of our time in the church. Well, I guess my response to that would be if in the church all we're doing is sort of espousing political opinions, I would agree. But to the extent that it's right to say, look, if there's a, if there's a divisiveness issue going on here, that's something we have to address. And I'll point us back to Ephesians chapter 2. What does Paul say? He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's our peace. And it's not just reconciliation with God that he had in mind here, but with one another. He has made us one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Not just with him, but with each other. Be at peace. In the context of not letting secondary issues sort of preferences that had become benchmarks of, of, of Christianity. So in other words, you know, well, if you do this, you can't be a Christian. Or if you do that, you must be a Christian. The secondary issues, that, that whole thing was beginning to divide the church in Rome. And in that context, Paul says to them, Romans 14, 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. To the divisiveness, the divisiveness, he called that being weaker. That's the weaker brother. And he said, don't do that. Seek peace. The Corinthian church was having a similar issue. They were facing serious division over interpersonal squabbles. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 13.11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Which is, in other words, is, is, is him sort of uh, articulating again that clear biblical teaching about God's presence with his people. God is with the humble. He's for the humble. He's against the proud. To the Colossian church, Colossians 3.12-15, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. It's interesting to note there that in every one of Paul's epistles, to every one of the different churches, he brings this up, which tells us something. It's an issue in every church, right? It, there's a tendency in, in all of us, even within the church, to find ways to divide from one another. To, 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 to not seek to be at peace with one another because we've forgotten at what price was paid to achieve that peace. We've forgotten the cross. And so Paul has to say to each of them, look, you've got to seek to be at peace. Remember, you're in Christ. You're one 
the dividing wall has been broken down. And the fact that Paul has to say it to every church then leads me to say, you know what? Yeah, he's got to keep saying it to every church now. That's why this is written for our instruction. Peace is about unity in Christ. And unity in Christ is a central Gospel issue. It's what the Gospel has achieved. It takes effort to sustain. Because our tendency is to forget, again, the price paid to achieve it. So to love those next to you is to seek to be at peace with one another through the Gospel. Thirdly, then he says to love those whom God may have placed behind you. Look at verse 14. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Loving those whom God may have placed behind you. And let me explain what I mean when I say behind. All right? When we read this, we're, we're, we're seeing sort of that, that depiction of those who are they're struggling with something, right? Uh, they need to be admonished. They need to be encouraged. They need to be helped in some way because there's something. There's, there's some kind of maturity that needs to be brought about yet in this person, right? So to say that they may be behind you isn't necessarily to say that we should always be looking down on these folks because, frankly, we're all going to be these folks from time to time. But to the extent that those of us who are in the Lord and in the church have maturity, we're to be looking backward regularly to say, how can we help those who are struggling? Right? And this gives us instruction then for who to love and how to love them. Again, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. I want you to notice this. There's a difference in the way that we're supposed to help each kind of condition. Right? You admonish those who are idle. You don't encourage them. You don't admonish the faint-hearted. They need encouragement. And you don't just simply encourage those who are weak. They need help. Right? There's a difference in the way that we're supposed to minister to each of these folks. Why do the idle need to be admonished? Well, the idle here, I mean, think about the word idle. In the New Testament, idle doesn't, doesn't usually first and foremost mean those who are lazy. When you look at those, those references to idleness in the New Testament, there's, a, there's an element of, of laziness that may come into play, but the chief issue of concern for the, uh, the New Testament writers is that idleness breeds disruptiveness. Right? Admonish the idle. The, the, they're the ones who, unlike who we just looked at earlier, who are willing to work hard for the benefit of the church, are more likely to be in the corner just talking about it. And being disruptive about it. This is where idle chit-chat and gossip take root. This is where grumbling and complaining can take root. It's disruptive. It's disunity. And so, obviously, based on what he's saying here, that's to be admonished. That, that's not okay. That needs to be called out for what it is. That's sinful. That's not loving behavior. That doesn't build up. It tears down. 
So for those in that kind of situation, we need to come along and say, look, brother, sister, that ain't good. You need to repent of that. This is divisive. This is, this is ungodly. But then he says to encourage the faint-hearted. What, what's a faint-hearted person's struggle? To be faint-hearted is simply to be discouraged, right? It, it may be that there's, that there's some doubts that you're wrestling with. It may be that there's some circumstances or other relationships or something that's going on around you where your, your, your view, your outlook has, has sort of ceased to be vertical and has gone completely horizontal. And you get, you get bogged down. And to encourage someone like that is, is simply to see them as someone who, as a brother or sister in Christ, just needs to be reminded again of the vertical outlook. Remember who you are in Christ, brother. Remember that Christ has died for you, sister. Remember that you're a part of the body. Preach the gospel to yourself. Let me help preach it to you. Let me encourage you with the word of God. It's sort of the sense that if I just give you a little nudge because I know who you are, I know the spirit of God dwells in you, you'll move in the right direction. You just need a little encouragement. You don't need to be admonished. Right? Like, just get your act together. That's not helpful. Encouraging is helpful, right? But then he talks about helping the weak. And, and, and I would say the weak is the person where that, in, that level of encouragement, uh, that le- maybe I should say that level of discouragement has moved to sort of a, another plane. It's not the person that you can just sort of say, look, let me just remind you of what's true and I know you'll, you'll move in the right direction. But the weak is the person that might say, I can't do it. I can't get there. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm hearing the encouragement. I'm hearing the truth, and it's just not moving me. And to that person, Paul says, "Look, you got to help them. There's sometimes you got to take them by the hand. You got to hold them. You got to walk with them. You got to be what they can't be in that moment, right? And again, encouragement's not enough. An admonishment is awful, but help." There's a difference. But here's what I love about him bringing this to light. He says, look, you, you, you treat different conditions in different ways, different positions in different ways, but, but, but here's the one thing you always do. Be patient with them all. Be patient with all of them. It's a process. Right? It's a process. And again, we have to be reminded of that because so often... Our temptation is to say, just come on, man, just get going. Just fix it already, right? And think about it. What, what are we saying to somebody when we're saying, just fix it? Here's what we're saying to them. We're saying, this and you aren't really worth my time and attention any more than this. Right? Love is patient. Love is patient. Love recognizes it's a process. And here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's where we're reminded of that. Let me just ask myself and you this question. Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient with you? <laughs> Aren't you glad that the Lord is patient? You know what the Lord doesn't ever say to you? Man, just fix it. Come on, this isn't worth my time and attention. Get over it. He doesn't do that. No, He comes and He dies for us. 
And he deposits his spirit in us. And he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And when we waver and when we doubt and when we struggle, his love is steadfast and patient. Second Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Aren't you glad for the patience of God? And so to love those whom God may have placed behind you, and I say whom God may have placed there, again, that's a recognition that, that where they're at, where they're at in their spiritual growth, that's not up to you. That's up to the Lord. Right? But He's placed us together in the body, recognizing that there will be some in the body who are able to disciple and care for based on a position of not their own, but God's grace in spiritual maturity. And maybe some have been placed behind us in that regard for simply the, 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 the means for us to love them as God has. God, God has positioned. We just need to respond to that. So we're to love, Paul says, look, in the church. He said, this, this is, this is what, what we're called to do is we're waiting on the return of the Lord. We're not living like the world. We're not, we're not living like uh, those who would reject what God is like. We're to live like He is. Like He did. Like He showed us. We're to reflect Him, not reject Him. And for you, church, here's how that fleshes out. Loving one another. And you're going to do that in the context of the body by loving those whom God has placed in front of you, by loving those who God has placed next to you, and by loving those who may, maybe the Lord has placed behind you. It's 360 degree love. But it's not just a circle. It's a sphere. Because there's one other element here that I want to highlight. It's the fourth point. It's loving like the One who is above you. Love the ones in front and next and behind and love them like the one who's above. And I say that by looking at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Never repay evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. And again, I just think, look at the cross. Look at the cross. What, what could God have done if He wanted to seek revenge against those who do evil? He had every right to do that. Right? But what's the posture of God towards evildoers? There's one of two things, right? The first one is, He extends grace to the sinner. He is patient. He extends grace. He forgives. The second one is that God will judge not out of a sense of repaying evil for evil because God doesn't do evil. God's judgment is righteousness. It's just. But here's the thing about that element of God's response. That's His prerogative. That's not for us. Right? It's not for us to judge. It's for us to let that be the Lord's work. But to the extent that we're called to walk in the ways that He's walked, we're to show grace. We're to show grace. 
God shows us His love for us in that while we were still sinners, we were rejecting Him, we were hating Him, we were deserving of all kinds of punishment for our own evil wickedness. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love. Not that we loved God. We didn't love God. We didn't think but love God. That's not what love is. Here's love that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so John says there in 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How do you love people in front of you and next to you and behind you ultimately in a, in a, in a right way? In a way that, that's truly going to build up the church? You love them like the way God has loved you. You remember that God is gracious. God is faithful to forgive. God doesn't repay evil for evil. God extends grace. Let me, let me close by... by uh, I want to affirm you, Edgewater. Because I, and, I, and I really mean this. When I, when I consider what this text has to say about relationships in the church, my first reaction as I study this this week is to say, thank you God for the way that this fruit is on display in our church. And, and, and as one who uh, you know, falls sort of in that first category, uh, as a pastor, as a leader in the church, I want to just affirm you in this. I feel loved by you. Amen. Thank you. And I'm, I'm so, I'm grateful for that. There's, there's evidence here that, that the Lord is at work in us as a body to, to recognize that, you know what, God has given gifts to the church. And I'm not just talking about myself at this point. God has given various gifts to the church and, and we, we are recognizing those gifts. You know, whether it's, whether it's officially recognizing as elders or deacons or whether it's sort of the recognition that comes with you know, just like the people that, that you will often go to for, for prayer or for counsel, you're recognizing those that God has already stirred up to be at work for the service of the body. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. And I, I just want to affirm you that I'm encouraged by how God is doing that. And I, and I think about how we're, we're seeking to be at peace with one another and loving one another. And, and today, even in the service today, I think there's evidence of that. Just in the way that, that the prayers of, of God's people, that the, Esteban's prayer wasn't, wasn't sort of written into the service order, by the way. That was just sort of, I think the Holy Spirit just prompted him to pray that way. <laughs> That's evidence of love for the body. And as Louise said, I didn't, I didn't tell her what to pray for. I just sort of said, hey, let the Lord lead you in that. And it was interesting how the Lord led her and Esteban to pray something very similar that matched up very well with what I was about to preach. That wasn't coordinated. That's God at work. And so I affirm that. God's at work. And He's at work in the way that, that you care for well those who are needing admonishment, discipleship, encouragement, help. So I want to affirm that. And I want to just praise God for that. I don't want you to walk out of here feeling like today was a scolding moment. It's not. It's not. And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that we have, we have to continue to pray for growth, don't we? 
Because some of these things that, that we sort of talk about in a negative light, we can still say, yeah, those things exist. And they exist in us. We still have conflict with each other. And we have conflict over secondary things. We, we, we've forgotten who we are in Christ and who, who my brother and my sister are in Christ. We forget that. And we start questioning each other and, and, and we fail each other. And, I mean, that happens. And so we constantly need to be reminded of this truth. We're called to love behind and in front and next to like the one who's above who loved us even though we didn't deserve it. Oh, He's patient. Oh, He's gracious. Oh, the cross of Christ. Cruciform love is our model. And so we need that. We need that. And I want to pray for that now. Father, again, thank You for what You're doing. Thank You that the church, by Your design, is to be a place that's, that's very different from what we see anywhere else in the world. Thank You for cruciform love. Thank You for Your Son and what He's achieved in making one people knocking down the walls of division and hostility, not just between us and You, but between one another. Lord, thank You for that work. And thank You for the evidence of that work in Your people. And yet, Lord, we, we, would, we would be prideful and naive to believe that uh, that work is by any means completed in us. It's not. And Lord, it's right for us even, even now to to just confess to You our, our sin as we fail to live up to this kind of love. We recognize, Lord, that we fail in these things. And we fail in these things regularly. So we call upon Your mercy. We thank You for the cross. We say, forgive us, Lord, and make us new. Make us better. Make us like Him. Make us people who really know how to love. Make us people who really know how to help. Who really know how to encourage. Who really know how to admonish. And to do that with patience. For Your glory, God. And for our good. And for the good of our, our, our neighborhood, our world, our city. Those who see. Lord, oh, let them see in the church something that speaks of the love of God. So help us by Your Spirit. Help us to submit to one another and to be humble. And help us to be proactive. God, You can do that. And in You, so can we. So we ask for Your help. And we thank You for Your grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.